Nesse primeiro podcast da série sobre estratégias para o agronegócio, confira as tendências globais para o setor. Hi everyone, my name is Giovanna Araújo. I'm Key PMG Sector Leader of Agribusiness for Brazil. It's a pleasure to open this dialogue with uh, all of you today um, through this podcast, which will be the first of a series of podcasts about strategic topics related to the agribusiness sector. And for this first podcast, we invited a very special guest, Ian Proudfoot, which is KPMG's Global Head of Agribusiness. Hi, Ian. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? Good morning. <laughs> good morning. Uh, thanks for accepting our invitation. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. No, no problem. It's a pleasure to have a chat about some of these very important topics. Thank you. So, in today's podcast, we will discuss some trends shaping the global agribusiness sector. I think we could start exploring about implication of this COVID shock for the agribusiness sector globally. So in your view, Jan, what trends will be accelerated? What are the new trends arising as a result of this pandemic? Are there any fundamental shifts in the global agribusiness markets that organizations need to consider in their strategic planning? That's a very, very broad question to start with, but um, the the reality is that, you know, for me, what I'm referring to COVID as is, is sort of the great accelerator. So what it's doing is it's intensifying focus on the things we need to do and making us do them faster. Whereas things that we need to stop doing, it's stopping us doing them quicker than we probably would have stopped doing them. So as I look at what we're seeing in the food system globally, we're, we're seeing this evolution and reconnection of people back to food. You know, I think when you look around much of the world, you know, we've, we've all spent quite a lot of time shut at home over the last six months. And, and being shut at home, we've had a couple of things. We've had our families, and in many cases, that means we've had our kids, which has you know, tested many of us in terms of how we manage our, our jobs and our lives. Um, we've had our houses and we've had food. And as a consequence, food has become far more important to us. The, the way people are eating around the world has really gone back to the way we used to eat. We're doing a lot more baking. We're doing a lot of cooking at home. Um, we're thinking a lot more about the implications that food has on our health. Um, we're also going back to comfort food, the food we knew as kids, because that gives us sort of this, this feeling of security. It's something we know in a world where everything is se seeming to be very uncertain. So all of these sort of trends are coming through and, and for, for a company that's producing food or growing food, it's how do you connect your food to the customer? The customer is at the center of your world. So how can you make sure that you're actually putting, providing them the food in the format they need? Is it packaged right? Is it packaged in a way that they feel safe about consuming it? You know, have you told the health story? Have you followed up what this is going to do to help you boost immunity? All those factors become really, really important. And, and from my perspective, I think, you know, that's the big change. It is this reconnection of people to food. And, and I, I believe if you can tell your story better or tell your stories in a way that appeals to the consumer's mindset today, 
then then that's really important. But that does mean how you sold the product last year, the size of the portion, the price point on the portion, the um, the story you put around it may be quite different today to what it was six months ago. So there is a real need to be connected to your consumer and pivoting really quickly. Oh, that's very interesting. And uh, in your view, what's the role of the digitalization in this whole contest? It's, 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 it's been fascinating. I saw some stats last week that suggested that, oh, you know, in the United States in particular, um, they'd, they'd seen in three months 10 years worth of growth in digital uptake in e-commerce platforms. So if you look back over the last 10 years, we'd effectively done what had happened in 10 years in three months. And, and that, so we've, we've reached an inflection point in terms of digitalization. So from a consumer perspective, what we have in the food system now is a global virtual high street, or in fact, it's almost a global virtual city of places you can look around the world and buy food from. And, you know, that means there's a whole heap of new competitors. But it equally means if you're a farmer with a story, you can now go out and tell your story and your market is suddenly global. You're not constrained in the same way you were to needing to find a supply chain with bricks and mortar to ultimately get the product to the consumer. So it's, it's unlocked this whole new opportunity. But I, I think it's quite exciting for, for farm businesses to be able to connect directly to the people that eat their food. Mm-hmm. If you take the digitalization tra- trend and think about that, what else does it mean? Well, there's, there's two other big implications, I think. One is that there is now a recognition that, you know, rural areas have this fundamental digital deficit, that they don't have digital equality with um, with urban areas. And I think, you know, that, that will see more investment into infrastructure and digital connectivity in rural areas. And that's good because that digital connectivity will enable farming businesses to actually move quite quickly up the digitalization curve. And, you know, we've been a sector that's been slow to digitalize up to now because it's just not been easy to do. So I think that will unlock a whole lot of new technology, which will enable us to produce more while using less of our natural resources. But it also will mean that we'll be able to attach to the products we produce, those digital signals that will be critically important to the consumer to give them the story about provenance. So it it provides a platform to build the blockchains or build whatever you want as a digital connection to the consumer. So I I think what we will see is a far more digitally based food system. We're obviously not going to eat bits and bites, but what we will do is they will sit alongside and they will tell us what we are eating and give us the confidence that what we're eating is safe. Okay, great. Uh, uh, Regarding the connectivity, this is very lack of high-speed connectivity. This is very true for Brazil nowadays. Uh, But uh, one thing that called my attention still on this topic, digitalization, uh, is uh, one of um, that you shared in one uh, recent report called Agribusiness 2020. Uh, You said that high-speed connectivity that enables effective use of new tools remains a constraint to unlock this full potential of this digitalization. However, the elephant in need of addressing is data interoperability. Uh, Could you please elaborate more on that 
Yeah. So I, I think one one of the things that I've noticed going around the world about data in the primary sector or in the food and fiber sector is people like to keep their data really, really close. So they they hold on to it and they believe that the value in their data is is going to be they'll realize that value in that data by using it themselves. But the reality is that if you think about a farming business, they, they they produce a whole range of different data, you know, whether it's information about animals or whether it's information about the the application of fertilizer or whether it's rainfall data. Um, there's a whole heap of information coming out of a farm. But the trouble is at the moment, it's all sitting in different places and none of it's being joined up. What what I think evidence is starting to show, and there's some really good examples coming out of, say, countries like Holland, where they've created data cooperatives, where people are coming together to share that data, is if you bring that data together, the value that everybody gets out of the data is significantly greater. So if you can create a platform, a, a digital commons, to share information, then that's where we're going to get the real insight, the gems that will enable us to, to create significantly greater value, improve our yields, improve environmental performance, address all these key issues that are facing the sector around the world. But it needs a real mindset change that the, you know, the value of data, if you keep it to yourself, is maybe one plus zero equals minus one sometimes. But if you share that data, one plus one plus one can be 12. And that's the beauty of joining data up. The real insight comes from when you've merged data sets. So I, I think there's the, the need to encourage data operability is an item we're seeing on the agenda across um, multiple countries. And I, I know some countries are doing it very well. And some, there's still a, a real sort of block that needs to be broken down. And, and I know where I'm sitting here in New Zealand, we've got a big block that we need to break down around data sharing. Interesting. We we start to see here in Brazil some cooperatives moving uh, to create digital platforms. They're uh, mm. starting to create in that. So we are optimistic that soon uh, this picture Nah, we will start to change in Brazil. Uh, yeah, but it's, uh, it's interesting because you think about the primary sector, it's and the food and fiber sector has been, you know, historically a very cooperative industry. If you think about dairy, you've needed to work with other farmers to make dairy work. So you know, whether there's small dairy cooperatives that we see in India or Africa, or the really big ones that have come out of France or New Zealand or Australia or the United States, but with historically farmers have been keen to share to you know enable them to find a lot of value in their businesses. But in data, we just don't seem to be able to get over that fence yet. So hopefully we can quickly because that, that is the next frontier. Yeah, yeah, great. And uh, another side of the digitalization is the, which is a challenge in the agribusiness sector, uh, is related to people. Uh, they are growing challenges to educate and retain a workforce with capabilities to perform in this new digital environment. Yeah. So it seems there are steeper skills gaps between the profile of the current workers and the future ones. So in your view, what is the profile of this future worker in the agribusiness sector? I think it's quite a different person to what it's been historically. But 
you know, there's there's a couple of things that we need to come over. But the, the beauty of food being central to people's thinking at the moment means that one of the big challenges that attracting talented people into agribusiness has had has been this perception that, you know, it happens in the country. It's not in the city. It's not flash. It's not sexy. It's not the, the industry that... Um, that people want to be in so i think around the world there's been a real tra- challenge atta- attracting as much talent as the industry needs a lot of the people that come into agriculture come into agriculture because they've had a very strong family connection back to agriculture and it's it's part of who they are it's part of their dna but we need a broader talent base and pool to be attracted into the sector so the industry itself around the world, you know, is facing a big challenge. You know, it's been an industry with a strong perception of paying low wages. You know, modern slavery legislation is appearing around the world partly because of the agriculture sector, because we've had a reputation of not treating people properly. So the jobs have not been highly attractive jobs for people to be part of. So I think what the industry needs to, to be able to do is demonstrate that there is long-term career opportunities, that those career opportunities are becoming increasingly diverse. We need people with digital skills, that ability to combine biology and digital science and data science to make something happen. We need the ability to um, have people with a, a, a vision for how you connect farmers to markets we need farmers that can run complex businesses where you're balancing science and you're balancing people management skills and you're balancing a whole range of other factors as well as base financial skills so you know for me i i get frustrated when i talk to farmers around the world and they say i'm just a farmer you know what we naturally need is people that are saying i'm an agripreneur i'm running a complex business i'm combining science and and economics and people management to do the most honorable thing in the world which is to feed people and as a consequence you know if we can reposition the job in the sector as something that that is truly ambitious i i think that's that unlocks this opportunity for people that want to have a career that's got impact has purpose it, it you know growing food and, and producing food is the most impactful the most purposeful thing you can do so this this should be a career that really applies to uh, appeals to a millennials and centennials so i think i think we have the right mix we've just got to sell it properly mm-hmm. that's very interesting uh and and hearing you ian uh i'm thinking that uh, not only the perspective of digitalization but also looking your comments on on the challenging uh, related to people it's, the feeling that we we have is that agribusiness sector are becoming is becoming more capital intensive intensive or in and also more knowledge intensive now do you agree with that do you see um uh, this is a driver for market consolidation in in the sector locally globally Uh, I think definitely the industry is becoming more knowledge intensive. No question about that. Um, it, it, it used to be, you know, for broad terms, a lifestyle industry. It was either you did it because you needed to feed yourself. You did it 
because it was what your parents did and your grandparents did or you did it because you wanted to and you in, you did it because you enjoyed necessarily you know, being outside you enjoyed working with animals you enjoyed something about the job but the reality is that's evolved quite dramatically over the last 25 30 years i think and if you look globally now it is much more of a professional industry being a farmer is a professional career and there's there's a set of skills that you need to be a good farmer and we're we're, we're around the world countries are working out what those skills look like and then providing the extension services to give people those skills so they can do the jobs effectively from a capital perspective that's a really interesting question because we've been a horrendously capital constrained industry um you know it's not been uh, when you look globally most large agricultural industries and i know you're probably a bit different in brazil where some of your really big agricultural industries are listed on the stock exchange but you know in many many countries the the, the big companies are either family owned or they're owned by cooperative groups of farmers they haven't had the ability to go out and raise capital the major funds and managers have, haven't liked the food and agri story because of the volatility. You know, when you know that one in seven years you're going to have a drought or you're going to have a flood and it's going to be a bad year, you know, that's a nice steady curve that they've been wanting for the, the sort of growth in their portfolios. So they've, they've shied away. So it's been hard to attract, you know, growth capital into the industry. But I think now the broader story around the opportunity in the food and agri sector, the fact that we know demand is on a track that's going up, the fact that we've got this plant-based um, narrative starting to take a, take concern. People are becoming more interested in the health of the food they're eating. People are interested in the impact it has on the environment. We're looking at the diet starting to transition and rebalance. All those stories have attracted new investors. And I think at this point in time, I sort of see an industry that is more attractive to capital providers than it's been at any point, probably in the last 50 to 100 years. So, you know, while we have had a capital problem, I think what we're finding and talking to our colleagues around the world is, is, you know, if somebody's got a good proposition, there is plenty of money available for good propositions now. So I think it's the, the challenge is more a knowledge challenge than a capital challenge at this point in time. Interesting. Uh, indeed, in Brazil nowadays, we are seeing um, these uh, mid-sized companies in the agribusiness sector uh, moving to the to the capital markets um, in, towards the IPO. Uh, mm. It's a it's a big trend nowadays yeah. in Brazil. So we're probably with low interest rates and more appetite for risks, um, and of course the resiliency of the agribusiness sector. Now, the sector proved that during this crisis and past crisis. So that that's definitely a trend nowadays yeah. in Brazil. And, and, I, and I think that, and that's great because the more countries where there's more of the sector available for people to invest in, it just raises the profile and people start to understand the risks better and therefore they go, well, you know, this is fundamentally, you know, when you're investing in food, you're investing in the one thing as a human society we can't not have. So it's, you know, it, it is it's it is a very, very sensible long term investment as far as I can see. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. And uh, uh, in this so-called new normal future, uh, 
and what you see is critical to a country um, to position itself as a trusted food producer, which environmental, social, governance, KPIs would be critical for uh, organizations in this sector. Um, so I think when you look at the now normals, a couple of things that stand out to me. One is, you know, we have moved in this period of, you know, rampant globalization towards something that's, you know, much more about the domestic national economies. And, you know, that, that you could say that's been driven by things like Donald Trump and the United States and by the Brexit movement in the UK but countries putting themselves first and not necessarily being isolationist, but being more closed to globalization. So, you know, for countries like Brazil, which is a food exporter or here, you know, here in New Zealand as well, we, we rely on open free markets to be able to provide our products to the world. And I think therefore, you know, for us as, as exporting countries, it's really important to be thinking about how you make sure that the international trade you're doing isn't just good for the country that's exporting the products, but it's good for the country that's importing the products as well. So it's about thinking what's win-win with the countries we're doing, doing trade with. How can we be seen to be benefiting not just ourselves, but the wider communities that are receiving the products? So that needs a different mindset into how we do trade and how we think about trade. Um, so what, does, what do I think that means? Well, if you take that from an environmental perspective, I think it's really important that if we're going to be, if you're going to be seen as a, a valued food export partner, that you are thinking about the environment. That, you know, while at the moment it's, it's pretty tough to be making decisions to invest in things like climate change or water improvements or protecting our biodiversity and, uh, you know, in, in your case in particular, protecting forests. Um, we've got to be making those investments. Even if we can't make as bigger investments as we might have thought we'd like to make last year, we've still got to be making some small investments in. So we're taking steps towards improving our environment and we're not changing our ambitions. So I think, you know, if, if somebody's already articulated an ambition of being a sustainable food producer, that's got to remain the ambition as we move into this new normal period and just recognize that the pace at which we head towards that ambition may be slightly different. I think from a people perspective, we've got to be prepared to be investing, as we've already talked about, in our people and making sure that we, we are seen as a good employer that follows all the rules and making sure that um, we, we are pushing hard to, to take advantage of the, um, the ability to tell a story about being good for our, the communities that we work in. I, I think, you know, metrics I'm also seeing around uh, our involvement with the development of science, the investment into um, developing the, the rural communities that, that our businesses are often part of. All those things are going to be the metrics. But yeah, I think in the end, the metrics that are most important to focus on are the ones that are important to your or your your community because they provide you with the license to operate. Uh, 
and the metrics that are important to your consumers because they're the people that are going to buy the products. So I think it's important you've got to be close to your community and close to your consumer. Understand what's important to them and then make sure you build that into the plan so that you can continue to do positive international trade for everybody. Okay. Um, you you mentioned uh, this trend toward a less globalized world. Uh, and regarding this topic, the Brazilian producers has um, two main concerns. So first, what's going to happen with um, multilateral entities such as WTO, mm. for example, which has been an important mediator uh, um, in some specific uh, trading battles with Brazil yeah. and sugar, for example. And, uh, and another concern is the relationship between countries between with between Brazil and countries such as China, which is key for us, Brazil. Uh, so, what 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 are your views on that? Uh, well, the, the the WTO situation is really complex at the moment, and you know, as uh, coming from a country that's a small trading nation, we we desperately want the, the WTO to continue to function and continue to be able to play that sort of run the rules based uh, global trading system but you know it's not looking particularly great at the moment there's the, it will be able to continue to function effectively because of some of these challenges they've got around the the appeals process or the challenge process and I I think, you know, we've, we've therefore seem to have moved from this broad multilateral system towards either bilateral arrangements or um, things like the, you know, the comprehensive uh, progressive trans-Pacific partnership agreement, that's the CPTPPA, or, you know, what, what you're doing from a Mercosur perspective with the, trend, with the free trade arrangements into the EU, for instance. But you know those those broad agreements look like they may be the future um are they as as effective as a, a clear rules-based system well you know i i think we've got to still have the underpinning of you know what's if so it's very clear what's fair and what's not fair and at the moment that there is a lot of blurring of those lines and you know i've been happily saying for the last four years when the biggest player in the market rips up the playbook and decides to do things its own way it's made it incredibly difficult for a lot of trading nations and you know that that ability and and i can see it's you know, brazil would be facing exactly the same challenges as we face from here in new zealand and australia are facing you're trying to do business with the united states and you're trying to do business with china and the two countries are effectively um you know, engaged in, in what's becoming a, an incredible, uh, incredibly challenging trade war, which, you know, just took another turn in the last few days with some new trade sanctions being imposed by the US on China. So how you tread that fine line between the two is 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 a big, you know, takes a lot of political nous. And you can see, you know, when you maybe don't quite get that line right, and Australia is probably a really good example at the office at the moment where, They've, they've followed quite a, a staunch line on challenging 
um, the Chinese around the source of the coronavirus. So suddenly they're, they're seeing restrictions being put on their beef and restrictions being put on their barley and restrictions being put on their wine. And you can see, you know, the politics and the trade very quickly overlap and create create problems. So as I look at it, you know, what, what we've been talking to our trade people here about is it, the, the Chinese are an incredibly important customer, but you've got to respect their perspectives on the world as well as your own and make sure that when you do express a view, it's got to be done in a way that's politically balanced. And, you know, it, it takes some really smart politicians to make sure that those trading relationships are not strained to a point where they start to become a problem, as we've seen in Australia recently. So, it, it's a it's a very very challenging market and the, the key if you're a, a company laying in this market at the moment is be flexible you, you know the need to have an agile response is really important but equally if you are investing in building relationships in the markets you're selling into you're less likely to get shut out of those markets because your products are important to them and you the relationships will see you through and i think that's where it, it's it's being more than transactional becomes really important. That's great. Uh, we are approaching the end of our podcast. Jan, thank you very much for your insights. They were extremely helpful. Uh, I hope all of you have enjoyed this conversation as I had. Uh, many thanks for your attention and hope to see you soon in the next podcast. Excellent. Thanks for having me. Você acabou de ouvir um podcast com Giovana Araújo, sócia líder de agribusiness da KPMG no Brasil, e Ian Proudfoo, líder global do setor na KPMG.